Hey everyone, I'm Leslie. Welcome to this episode of Miraculously Mental. Today is National Survivors of Suicide Day, and it is a somber day, and this episode is going to have a somber tone to it, but I feel that it is incredibly necessary. Suicide has a stigma almost as much as mental illness, if not even more. 44,000 people in the United States die every year by suicide and over 800,000 worldwide. That's one death per 40 seconds. And those deaths leave behind loved ones who are faced with a pain and a grief that they will carry for the rest of their lives. And today we acknowledge and speak to that pain and grief. My guest today is Janelle Yule, and Janelle lost her brother to suicide in 2012. Janelle first told me her story about a year ago, and I was just starting out with Miraculously Mental, and she said that she wanted to be a part of it. So Janelle, welcome. Oh, thank you. I'm glad you're here. I am very sorry for the circumstances, but I am honored to have you share your story with us. Great. Thank you. Yeah, we can get started. So I lost my brother. His name was Stefan back in 2012 in February. It was completely unexpected. A lot of times suicide is just not, it's not obvious. And I'm, you know, appreciative of things like Miraculously Mental and other, you know, ways people are going about, you know, removing the stigma from suicide and showing that it it can happen to anyone really and learning the warning signs you can you can learn them all day but a lot of times they're they go totally like under the radar and i think that was the case for us my brother was 18 and he had just graduated high school he was funny sweet he had a ton of friends he wasn't very interested in school but he was still really smart very sensitive he took things to heart he cared about what other people thought of him, but he really was a good friend. And he he didn't really get rebellious until his high school years. And it wasn't even anything that crazy. Like we all did rebellious things like have a beer with friends or experiment with this oh, or yeah. that. But <laughs> there. there wasn't yeah, there wasn't anything in particular that set off any bells or whistles. And the crazy thing with, you know, depression and suicide in general is like it's not a one size fits all situation. He was not your typical picture of someone that you would say, oh, that person, you know, might be at risk. He continued to struggle with schoolwork in high school, but he had plenty of friends, social engagements. He was always busy. He joined the bowling team, even though all the cool kids were were not doing it, but he found a way to make it cool and hilarious. Everything was like the funnier, the better with him. We still bring his bowling jersey and ball to the bowling alley when we go with our family. Oh, we find it hilarious. <laughs> <laughs> you have to find humor and stuff, otherwise you'll. Of course, he graduated high school and went to the community college in town to get his grades up. And I think it was kind of this time that he got in with the wrong crowd. And like this is kind of a turning point where we we could say, you know, we started to see him change a little bit. And I think. He didn't bring his friends around as much because a lot of his close friends from high school went away to college. 
So he didn't bring his new friends around. We weren't really sure who he was hanging out with, but he seemed okay. So we didn't really question anything. You didn't push it. Yeah. And he did eventually kind of get into smoking and it wasn't marijuana. And this is an important thing to talk about because he is not the only one who has passed away because of this. In Michigan, they sell, it's called like K2 or Spice at gas stations. And it's essentially... I've heard of that. I've heard of Spice. I haven't heard of K2, but I have heard of Spice. Yeah, it's basically oregano sprayed with chemicals. And they can't regulate it because every time someone tries to stop it, they change the formula of what they spray on the chemicals or spray on the herbs or whatever it is. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And it can cause hallucinations. It can cause like psychosis. Um, So it's perfectly legal. Oh, it's perfectly legal. I mean, it's legal until they, then they try to enforce something. And so they just change up a few things to make it legal again, I assume. Yes, exactly. Yeah. And anyone over 18 can buy it. They sell it at head shops and things like that too. And it's caused a plethora of suicides and unnecessary deaths across the country. But this is an important fact because I think that is what we found that he had um, after he had passed away and how it went. So in February of 2012, I was home watching him while my parents were in Florida and I caught him smoking in his room. And I remember being mad because it was nothing he'd ever done before. I was like, what? I mean, we, I come from a reasonably like they're a fun family, but not a family who would ever condone smoking in the house ever. And how old, how old was he and how old were you? He was 18. I was 22. So yeah, I caught him doing that. And I was like, come on, like not okay. Come on, bro. Yeah. <laughs> and then not even an hour later, the front doorbell rang and I opened it up and it was a police officer. And another thing, I mean, All of us have a very clear record. There was never really any trouble at our house. And he's like, can I speak with your brother? And I said, sure. And of course, I was eavesdropping on their conversation. And, you know, the police officer asked him, he was like, did you try to use a fake $20 bill at McDonald's? (laughs) And I was sitting there behind the wall going, oh my gosh, what (laughs) did he do? And... The cop was so nice. And he was just like, you come from a nice home. You drive a nice car. You're employed. Why? And I know like my dad did a bunch of like funny, like, oh, can we get away with it type things? You know? Oh yeah. Just pranks and stuff. And I, I truly believe he was just kind of like, oh, let's see if we can make fake money with our Canon printer in our living. Right. I was like, oh my gosh, why? And but he wasn't trying to like, get, you know, he, he was trying to get away with it, but he wasn't purposefully like trying to, to get in trouble. He was just like, hey, let's see what happens. Exactly. This will be funny. Yeah, like this will be funny. And he thought he got away with it. And I guess the guy at McDonald's called 911 and were like, this car was here and, you know, tracked him to our house. So, of course, as like a big sister who's supposed to be babysitting him, who's done, you know, two not okay things within an hour. <laughs> um, <laughs> Smoking and fake McDonald money. Yes. I was like, what are you doing? I was like, that is a felony. And he, his face just turned white. And I think at that moment, he's like, my life's over. Like, cause I was like, that's like a huge crime. And I didn't think he would take that like, so to heart. I mean, I know he was just messing around and the cop was most likely going to just 
let him go because it was silly. But I think he thought like, oh my gosh, I'm going to prison. My life is over. I'm going to be there for 40 years for my $20 McDonald bill. Yeah, I think that's truly what he thought. And so he went upstairs and shut his bedroom door. And it was late at this point. And I was like, I'm going to bed. And I had a friend in high school commit suicide. And I don't, for whatever reason, that came to mind. And I laid there and I texted my brother. I said, you know, that everything's going to be fine. Like, this is not a big deal. Just, you know, I love you. And that was the last thing that I sent him. And did I, he respond? Um, No, but I know it went to his phone. And that night, I think he was up the whole night because I kept, I was sleeping downstairs and I could hear him like walking around and stuff. So I think he continued to smoke that stuff, the spice or K2. And I, you know, I just kind of thought, I, I just, I never thought it would go that far. And in the morning I woke up to go to the gym, which is normal, got my stuff together and went to the gym around 9am. And then I came back and I opened the door and my parents, golden retriever was like standing there looking at me like something's wrong. And at that point, I don't know, my heart just like dropped. I don't know if it was a God you thing. Just, you just felt it. I just you just felt, felt it. that something I was wrong this like energy that was like something was wrong. And I like ran upstairs and found that he had shot himself with the gun that's supposed to go on my parents' boat. And it was a gift from a friend. And how he knew it was there, was able to load it. This must have taken, you know, thought. And I, I just didn't, you know, it's one of those things where I couldn't scream. I couldn't cry. It was like an overall just like emotional draining. Like there was no, it was a numbing. Was it almost like out of body? Because I would imagine that you would almost just, it's not even you at that point. No, it's not. It's not. And I remember like I panicked and I'm like, okay, well, you know, I have to call 911 I ran downstairs because I ran out of the house. I was like, I can't be in here. I don't, you just don't know what to do with yourself. And I called and they're like, did you try to give him CPR? Did you try? And I'm like, no, like I knew he was gone. And so I ran next door to our family friends who they've lived there our whole lives. We've lived in our house our whole lives. Um, And luckily one of them was home. So I wasn't by myself, but the real kicker, is my parents were on a plane home from Florida and I had no way to contact them. So I sat there for over two hours with no, no one to talk to except my next door neighbor and the police officer. And I just remember the police officer who came to my house that night came back and he was a mess. And I like had to console him because I was like, I heard the whole conversation. You said nothing, you know, that would. Oh, wow. So he was feeling guilty oh for even gosh, for following up. Horrible. And I'm like, nothing. Wow. You know, there's so much more to this than anything that you did. Like, do not let this fall on you. Um, that's such a, that's such a strong example though, of how much something like this impacts 
people and how it can impact people that you don't even think about. You know, I mean, the person that came because you tried to buy something at McDonald's with a $20 bill, but the fact that he was so bothered by it, that is such a, I think it's such a good example of that type of thing that, that these, these suicides, these deaths, they impact and affect so many people, no matter who the person is that, you know, that dies by suicide, it affects so many people. Yeah. And it's an instant feeling of guilt to anyone who is, you know, in the wake of that, because everyone's first instinct was, well, what did I do last? Or like, oh my gosh, I didn't see it coming. Or I didn't, you know, I didn't do something to stop it. And really at that point, there was no way to stop it. But guilt is definitely kind of the first emotion you're going to feel. And yeah, what did I do? What could I have done? Right. And I, you know, my parents kept calling. They were like, are you coming to get us at the airport? And I remember calling my pastor and was like, hey, I, you know, I need you. And he came right to me. And luckily he was the one that I had go meet my parents at the airport because at that point I was just so drained that I couldn't, I couldn't be the one to tell them. Like I had already just witnessed something that I like, thank God that it was me and not them that witnessed it for whatever reason. I just like, I think God was like, you are strong enough to handle this. And yeah, it was awful, but I, I would never wish that on my parents. And when they got home, they were, they were so confused and so lost. And I had to like kind of retell everything, but it's, it's one of those things where you, you yourself don't know, like you try to, you know, put a label and like a story together, but there's really, you're never going to know. And that's kind of the second thing is trying to, you know, after you feel guilty, you're like trying to put a reason to things, which is, you know, human instinct to want to give meaning to anything. But yeah, it was days of just numbness. I think my mom is really, she's much better at grieving, I would say, than my dad and I. We're kind of just quiet where she, you know, she's extremely faithful. She's extremely, you know, she processed it differently, I think. But well, yeah, and everybody does. I mean, when you experience trauma, especially on that level, obviously on other levels as well. But when you experience trauma to that magnitude, your brain cannot possibly handle that information. So it pretty much just puts you in like self-preservance mode and autopilot mode. And if you have been around anyone, you know, that has recently lost someone, even not necessarily by suicide, but just death in general, they always are on like that autopilot mode because the brain's like, nope, I can't do this. It shuts down. And then when it is, but it does keep coming back up until you do grieve. But then when you grieve, you have to actually think about it again and process it again. And some people, like you said, are more, and I don't know that better at grieving is maybe though, they're just, they're capable of kind of grieving in the moment. And then other people kind of grieve more on a long-term basis, if that makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. And we had, I mean, 
the outpouring of just people in our community, from church, from school, it was absolutely incredible. We had hundreds of people come to our home. We had hundreds and hundreds of people attend his funeral. And his he collected shoes and like crazy shoes. And <laughs> everyone wore a pair of his shoes at his funeral. Oh. Um, which was super cool. And which ones did you wear? Oh gosh. I just wore some really I wore my own shoes, but they were obnoxious. Which he would have loved. <laughs> um, like his headstone literally reads, You can't be happy if your shoes are crappy. Oh my gosh. Yeah, that's amazing. That's the back of it. And yeah, in his own handwriting. Which is That's awesome. Better. Yeah. It's hilarious. But yeah, I just it, we continue to just you know, slowly process everything. I was supposed to move to San Diego with my boyfriend, who's now my husband. But, um, and I felt this pull to go because I felt like, okay, Stefan would want me to go. He wouldn't want, he would never want anyone to like sit at home and just cry about it. I know he wouldn't, he's just not like that. So I was like, okay, you know, I'm going to do it. And I think I just bottled everything in and thought like, I just like left everything behind and that turned into a lot of problems down the road. Mm -hmm. And I, I actually went, my church that I found in San Diego had a suicide survivor support group. And I thought, okay, like that's kind of interesting. I've never heard of that before because granted it wasn't that long ago, 2012, no one really still talked about suicide or, you know, there was still a really strong stigma around it. So I thought, okay, there's some people that might understand and I'm going to go check it out. So I went and it was, it kind of felt like an AA meeting. Um, <laughs> they went around, they're like, hi, my name is so-and-so. And then you would, you know, kind of tell your story. So I sat and listened to the other people's stories first and they would say like, hi, my name is, you know, whatever. And, you know, my brother died 30 years ago and listening to these people's grief that, you know, they lost their loved one 30 years ago and they can't get through their story without just losing it, you know, 30 seconds into it. And I'm sitting there going, oh my gosh, is this going to be me? Like, am I going to be like this forever? And because it's a, it's a disabling thing to feel that level of grief. And I, that I never went back because I was like, I know there's something, you know, better for me out there. Yeah. I just, it wasn't helpful for you. No. And I think that was the hardest part because I think people kept, continuing to go back and I'm like gosh they're not really getting anywhere they're just kind of right you know stuck yeah and it it was Mm -hmm. hard it was hard to hear because I was you know I didn't really know what to expect and yeah so then after that I I didn't do any other sorts of therapy I ended up getting a dog named Henry (laughs) dog for therapy and He truly changed my life. Like people think I'm nuts, but he, you know, there were days I didn't want to leave the house. There were days 
that, you know, I just cried the whole day and sat in bed and ate food and held my dog and he didn't judge me and he didn't care. And he just sat there and I, that's therapeutic though. I mean, it, it looks different, but like we've said, everyone's grief looks different. And so for you, that's what grief looked like, you know, a dog and spaghetti and yeah, bed. Yep. And it was, you know, the days you didn't want to leave your house, that dog still needs to leave the house at some point and go for a walk. Right. So for that to, you know, be able to get me out of the house because that you can't say no to that face staring at you for that long. But that was my biggest healing point was having a purpose, you know, I felt needed. And where I, whereas I like, I guess I didn't feel that way, you know, anywhere else. So that was important. Physical activity was important. As we all know, it's a huge boost to our brain and our endorphins to exercise and feel good. I truly believe that that works, but I did continue to kind of bottle it up. I didn't see a therapist. I didn't talk about it. And I started to get sick. And I now have a few different autoimmune diseases that have been brought on by the stress and the weight of this. I was always very healthy, but I really struggle now with my health. And it's something I have to battle with every day. But yeah, we're still still going. And my husband's really supportive. And um, How did you get to a point where... Or do you, do you feel like you're still dealing with it or that you still haven't fully dealt with it or are doing things like this, helping you deal with it? Like kind of where are you as far as the initial grief? Because the illnesses in themselves that you have now carry their own grief. Because I know how that is when you find out, you know, chronic illness and all that has its own kind of grief subset. But have you, do you think you're still kind of slowly processing the grief from your brother's death or where I, are you in that? I do. I don't, it's hard to say where I am, but it's not ends. I don't want anyone yeah. to listening to my grief ends, but you, you do reach different phases of grief as you go along. Most, you most do. people. Yeah. And there's times, you know, I'm, I'm more of like a suppressing type person. Like I sweep things under the rug. I try not to think about negative thoughts and so I really try to relish the positive thoughts that I have about, you know, my brother and my family and my brother was a total, you know, jokester and like, I love joking around. I love, you know, I just try to embody, you know, someone that people would want to be around and have fun with and not take life too seriously because once you experience something, you know, that difficult you can't take life seriously anymore. It's just like, you know what? We are here for a very short time. And it's, you know, if you take things too seriously, you're not truly living. And right. I think- you, so it's kind of like you, to me, it's it sounds like you almost kind of carry on his legacy through, like you've kind of adapted his personality, right? Yeah. And you carry that a little bit inside of you you know, almost like in his, in his memory and in his honor, like, Hey, he found everything funny. I'm going to start doing that. You know, like it's, it seems like it's a healing thing for you. Humor has always been really healing to me. And as someone who struggles, you know, with depression, like, I think that's my biggest outlet is laughing. 
And I think, you know, I love to laugh and I love to make people laugh. And when I see something funny, I'm like, oh my gosh, Stefan would have thought this was hilarious. And, (laughs) you know, it's kind of like a moment where I'm, I don't know, it's, it's, I feel connected to him. So, absolutely. but yeah, that's, and I'm able to talk about it now. I think a big step in your grief is being able to share with others, you know, your story and it takes a long time. It was not easy at first. And, but now it's, I think it's important that we do share stories of people like that because the stigma is like, okay, you know, what, you know, what did they do? Are they, you know, a bad person or, you know, drug addict or this or that? And you're like, no, they were, you know, a loving, funny, awesome human being. And if we don't, you know, show that side of them, it's going to get lost. And I think it's really important. Died and not how they lived. Yeah. Right. And that's, that's so crucial to, I think helping get rid of that stigma is understanding that people who die by suicide are not weak. Like that's not a weakness because I think there is this stigma that, oh, you know, they just couldn't take it anymore. That's not the case. Like that isn't how it it goes. And I think that remembering who your loved ones were and who these people were, the life that they lived shows you, I mean, obviously something happened to, you know, it's either in their, in their mind or an event, something happened that, that got, gets them to that level, but who they were before is what I feel like should be focused on because that to me is the best way to honor them going forward. I totally agree. What would you what advice would you have for anyone? I know that grief is its own personal journey. Everyone has their own personal grief journey that they have to go on. But having been through this before and been, you know, six years ago, you've, you've been in this for six years now. What advice would you give to someone who is newly in your situation that you were in six years ago? Gosh, I would probably start by saying, you know, don't, don't blame yourself. Secondly, don't, don't always look for a reason. A lot of it can't be explained. It's beyond your control. And it's being hard on yourself, I think is going to be, you know, the biggest hurdle. And that was kind of all of my family's biggest hurdle, thinking like, what could we have done? What could, you know, there's nothing you can do. It's, that's the hardest thing to grasp. And as soon as, you know, people are going to say some awful things to you. And the thing is, they don't know what they're trying to say. They're just trying to be comforting. And right. not everyone's words are comforting. And you just have to let it roll off your shoulders, even though at the time you're like, that was super insensitive. Thank you. Right. But yeah, it's, it's a journey and it's hard. And it will make you, you know, you will come out of it a stronger person. It just, it'll wear you down. And it's, there's no easy way to do it. But I think surrounding yourself with people that 
you know, understand, we'll let you cry, you know, we'll just be a shoulder to lean on is really important. Yeah. Having that outlet to get it out. I know you said like, you're someone that kind of bottles things up and I know a lot of people do, they just kind of completely shut down, but being able to find a way, whether it's a, you know, a friend, family member, a therapist, a dog, finding a way to, to release some of that, you know, talk about it and, and get some of it out. It's so helpful, even though it's painful getting it out, the more that you get it out, the less you have it inside of you. Yeah. And I even, when I moved to San Francisco in 2015, I think there was a point where I was like, I need to go to counseling. And that was a big hurdle for me to cross. And I found a counselor, just kind of picked one off Yelp, nothing special. (laughs) Um, And I went and I just remember sitting down and she kind of just said, tell me, kind of like what I'm doing now. Tell me your story. Tell me, you know, why you're here. I got probably two words out and I cried for the whole hour. And then I gave her, you know, $150. (sighs) And I left. And And you went, well, that was helpful. (laughs) (laughs) I left and I was like, I just paid $150 to cry for an hour. And then (sighs) I thought about it and I was like, actually, I just, I really needed that. I didn't want to like, talk to my husband about it. And, you know, he already know he was there. Like, right. Right. I I guess just talking to a person looking back at me or not talking, crying. I don't know. She, it worked. I felt, I felt a release of emotion that had just been encapsulated for years. So I went back and continued to cry most every time. And then it got to a point where I didn't really have to cry anymore. And I was like, okay, you know, I think this, I think this worked. And I can't, I can't even recall one thing that the counselor even said that was profound or helpful. I think she just listened the whole time. And it would be actually really inexpensive if you had a friend that would just listen to you cry. (laughs) But sometimes you don't have to pay $150 to. (laughs) Yeah. So anyway, that was helpful. It's just helpful to have a good support system. And I'm very lucky to have had that because I know there's a lot of people that don't. And if you don't have that support system, you know, go see a counselor. They're, they don't have to say anything. It's just really good to get those emotions that have been bottled up out. It's very therapeutic and I would highly recommend it. I think one, the main thing that struck me when you first told me your story last year was how much of a, like a strong woman you are. And the fact that when people are first in the situation, you know, when it's fresh and new, it's hard sometimes to kind of see beyond that darkness and, you know, see that there is a light at the end of the tunnel. And that was one thing that stood out about you to me. And one reason I wanted you to be involved in this is to tell people and let them know from personal experience, there is a light at the end of the tunnel. This doesn't have to completely ruin the rest of your life. There is there is hope for you to live a well-rounded, productive, happy, joyful life after a loved one dies by suicide. 
Oh, for sure. And, you know, there were times in the grieving process where I'm like, I don't know if I can ever, you know, be happy again. And then, you know what, it's, it takes you on a journey that you didn't really expect, but it's, there's definitely a light at the end of the tunnel for everyone. I know that, you know, some people like in that support group, they are struggling after 30 years, but I think, you know, finding a different way to approach it. But I also think those people that have been struggling that long, think about how often suicide is talked about now, as opposed to even when it happened to me. If this happened 30 years ago, this was so taboo that, you know, this person probably had no one to turn to. And they're now just having a support group to like, get their emotions out. And absolutely. It's look how therapeutic that is for somebody. And I think that getting rid of the stigma is just so important because, you know, people can grieve faster is not the word I'm looking for, but people process, they can process things. Yes. At the end of the tunnel quicker, I think now than Mm -hmm. previous. Um, Right. It's not, it's still stigmatized, but it's not as stigmatized as it was 30 years ago. We have a better understanding of suicide now, you know, mental health altogether than we did 30 years ago. And we also treat it now like a disease, you know, where we used to treat it, you know, like a, I don't even know it. We used to treat it totally different Taboo. than we do now. Yep. Yeah. And, Absolutely. you know, you see somebody die of cancer or heart failure and you're like, okay, I can put, you know, a reason to this. It makes sense. I can process it. And I think being able to say, you know what, this is, it's not the same, but it's similar. And the more that it's happening, the more I think people are able to say, you know, they can put, you know, meaning there and they're able to process it more like that than. Right. You can put it in context. Yeah. You can can contextualize it. If assume that's a word and really kind of see it for what it is instead of seeing it for what it's not. And I think that's, that's a huge, you know, we're making, we're making huge steps in that direction. It's unfortunate. I remembered earlier this year, was it this year that we lost Anthony Bourdain and Kate Spade? And I was starting work on this project and I kind of had to gather my thoughts because, you know, when someone who's famous dies by suicide, it is everywhere. It's in the news, it's in the media, it covers every, you know, outlet. But what people don't realize is that this is happening every day. It's happening every 40 seconds, which means it's happened how many times since we've started recording this? And it's such a it's such a massive issue that it has to be brought to light other than when we lose people of status. Definitely. And I I remember when I'm a big Anthony Bourdain fan. And I think, you know, celebrity suicide, I really struggled with, you know, the lead singer of Linkin Park died and and Anthony Bourdain. And I think, I don't know why, but when you feel connected to someone like that through music or TV, it's, it's still like a little grieving process. And if you lived it before, it brings you similar emotions Mm -hmm. that, you know, the emotions come back of the day that it happened and you kind of reflect on things again and you just see people going, you know, they're so upset, 
you see family members upset and you're just like, oh, I feel, I feel for you. And you want to console them. And it's this, you know, once it happens to you, you want to really support people in that community. And luckily, there's so many ways now that you can do that. Where I'm from in Michigan, we just had our first suicide survivor walk this year. And it was huge. And it just shows like there's people out there ready to listen, ready to support you. And you're not alone. I think that's one of the biggest things is you're not alone. Because at the beginning of this, when you said you just felt really alone and Mm -hmm. you're, you're not alone. And that's such a huge factor. And I think can be of such help and support to people is recognizing and realizing you're not alone. And it's that mentality, the you're not alone mentality that has to resonate in order for us to change these statistics, in order for us to get these statistics down and these deaths by suicide down. People need to realize, you know, you're not alone. No matter what it is that you're going through, no matter where you're at in life, you're not alone. Someone else has similar thoughts. Someone else has similar feelings and reaching out. And, you know, if you can, I know that it's hard. And I, again, this is not saying people that die by suicide are weak, but if we can get to the, to them in a place where they are comfortable reaching out to somebody, that is the entire goal of what I'm working towards with this podcast and this organization is getting people to a place where they are comfortable saying, I need some support. I need some help. And when we do that, and when more people feel that and they feel okay reaching out, that's when we'll start to see these, I truly believe is when we'll start seeing these statistics go down. Janelle, thank you so much for being with us today. Thank you for sharing your story. I know that even though it's not fresh, I know that it still cannot be easy to talk about, but I know that people will hear this and they will be able to relate to it. They will understand it. And I truly believe they will feel less alone and that there is that light at the end of the tunnel after listening to your story. And thank you so much for having me. I think it's so important that people know that it does get better. And there are people that understand. There are people that have lived this as well. And it's a process, but you will get there and you know, you'll know you be stronger because of it. And we appreciate you sharing that with us so much. Thank you. If you or someone you know is contemplating suicide, please reach out to the Suicide Prevention Hotline at 1-800-273-TALK. That's 1-800-273-8255. The call is free and confidential and just might save a life. That's all for this episode. Until next time, be well, live well, and keep shattering the stigma.